0: Episode 4, The Quaker's Story Hello and welcome to Famine Monologues, a new six-part fictional series on the Irish famine, written by Anna Carey and performed by leading Irish actors as part of the Great Famine Project on rte.ie forward slash history. In this episode, we meet an American relief worker who describes her experiences while living in Ireland during the famine. The relief worker is played by Anne Byrne. If
1: you're reading this report of my experiences in Ireland, you should know that if I discuss strange things, it was because I saw them with my own eyes. And now those things appear, even to myself, more like a dream than reality. Because what I saw in Ireland was not just out of the ordinary, but out of the natural order of nature itself. It was simply wrong. It was on the evening of December 7th, 1845, that I first heard about the famine. I was stepping into the train at Kingstown for Dublin when I heard a policeman discussing a case of famine in the South. The potato, I knew, was partly destroyed. It seemed like bad fortune, but I never thought that actual famine would be the result not in Ireland. I was wrong. It didn't take long for the ordinary people to experience the consequences of those bad potatoes. Soon, the work of death commenced, and the volcano over which Ireland was walking had burst. For you see, the ordinary people of Ireland had long been hungry. But it wasn't until thousands were reduced to that state that the situation became impossible to ignore. It wasn't until after the hungry had picked over their blackened potatoes and until many of them were dying from both hunger and disease before the real state of the country was known. And when the country fell, it fell like an avalanche, sweeping at once the entire land. I first saw a starving person a few days after I heard the policeman's words. I was staying in a house in Kingstown and the servant told me a man had come to the door looking for help. His whole family were starving. He had pawned what clothes they owned, but now money and food were gone. And now he had offered his labour to a crew that were building a road nearby. For a scanty wage. In my childhood, I had been frightened by stories of ghosts and had imagined all sorts of fearsome skeletons. But my most fevered imaginings had come short of the sight of this emaciated man. He was tall, his eyes were prominent, his skin shrivelled, his manner cringing and childlike. The servant had been giving him her own food, but there was only so much she could give, and I knew I had to help her. But how? I had no money to spare for the work I wished to do. The thoughts of that starving man haunted me. But the next day, a parcel arrived from New York, and in that parcel there was money from New York, and that money was for me. And so began my work among the starving people of Ireland. I continued to ask for donations from my native land and made sure to do what I could. My fellow members of the Society of Friends were doing great work feeding the hungry of course but I operated as an individual and I took my own time and way as a woman is wont to do when she's given a choice in the matter. That winter I acquired a basket big enough to contain three of the largest loaves of bread. Every day, I cut that bread in slices and set off to give it to the needy. I soon attracted attention. It didn't take long before the poor knew all about what they called the American lady. And so they were always on the spot, ready to ask for money or food. No sooner was I out on the street, Then the army of the hungry began to gather. A slice of bread was given to each person until there was no more to give. But sometimes I feared I might be overpowered, not by violence, but by the sheer number of desperate people. At times I found myself actually running through the streets, pursued by the men, women and children who had not received a precious slice of bread. I would rush into some shop door or house for protection, till they went away. Sometimes I would have to hide there for a long time. And sometimes my pursuers had to be driven back by force. The people wanted that bread, but the Indian meal provided by the authorities was different. When it first landed in Ireland, the rich hailed it with joy. It was the solution to the country's woes, they said. And some actually condescended to say that they believed they would eat it themselves. But they didn't eat it themselves. And the poor called it Peel's Brimstone. And at first, they wouldn't eat it either. And who can blame them? Because when it first arrived, they had never seen such a substance before and had no notion of how to cook it. Even if they had, the government took in the supplies sent from New York and stored it so badly that it became damp and moldy. A good American farmer wouldn't give such a meal to his pigs. And when the half-starved Irish poor, who had been kept all their life on potatoes, took this sour, moldy, harsh food, well... Dysentery was often the result. But when we could finally get meal of good quality, I managed to teach many how to make a nourishing gruel, and many walked more than 20 miles to eat their fill of it. Eventually, I left Dublin and travelled around the country. I decided that I would bear witness and offer what help I could. I can never forget a visit I made to an island off the Atlantic coast where a small community lived. When we arrived, we saw and heard no sign of life, except a few dogs. I had never seen such dogs among the Irish poor, and I asked the crew of the boat, how can the dogs look so fat and shining here, where there is no food for the people? the pilot turned to one of his crew and whispered, Shall I tell her? And I knew why the dogs of Aranmore were so fat and shining, and after that, I could not bear to look at them. But however long I may have on this earth, I will never forget not just the astonishing suffering of the Irish, but the way even the youngest children will make sacrifices to feed those they love little orphan boys, one about nine and the other five, called at the door of a rich widow of my acquaintance and asked for food. There was only a small piece of bread left from breakfast and she gave it to the children. They thanked her and walked away but she stayed at the door to watch them go and hear the eldest say, here Johnny you're littler than I and can't bear the hunger so well you shall have it all. We're told by the powers that be that the year before this famine began was one of great abundance, and that the peasantry were then a contented and happy people. Well, 1844 was a year of abundance, but did the poor share in this abundance? Were they content? They endured the conditions in which they believed the Almighty had placed them, but they hoped and prayed for better days. Better days that they have not yet seen. Despite everything that has happened over the last year, I hope and pray for better days too. Until those days come, I will do my duty.
0: This series is a partnership between OTE, the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media, and University College Cork's Atlas of the Great Irish Famine. Produced by Ethna Hand, with sound design by John John Megan. To find out about Asenath Nicholson, the American relief worker who inspired this story, go to rte.ie forward slash history.